Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast, originally broadcast at Byline Radio via Twitter Spaces. This time, why we need an independent football regulator. This was a key recommendation from former sports minister Tracy Crouch's so-called fan-led review earlier this year. After the demise of clubs like Berry and Macclesfield, she called for a new watchdog to ensure clubs don't spend beyond their means and to protect them from changes to their name, colours, stadium location and so on, which might prove unpopular with fans. So far though, there's no date for when a regulator might be appointed and like a team hanging on to a one goal lead in the 89th minute, the Premier League is playing for time, calling for the Football Association to take on beefed up powers instead. In a moment, we'll hear from Niall Cooper, Chief Executive of Pressure Group Fair Game and Declaration of Interest. I am an ambassador of that organisation. Just a reminder first, though, that Byline Radio and the Byline Times podcast owe no party political allegiance. We're not in hock to any corporate interest or proprietor. We can tell it like it is, without fear or favour, because we're funded by ordinary readers of the Byline Times, our brilliant monthly newspaper. So please, if you like what we do, think about taking out a subscription or better still, a membership to the Byline Times. You'll get more information at our news-breaking website, bylinetimes.com. That's at bylinetimes.com. Now, football supporters have been calling for years for improved regulation of a financially unsustainable sport where the pursuit of honours is dominated by a wealthy elite of clubs run by oligarchs, oil states or global speculators who plotted to create a hugely controversial European Super League in 2021. Now the government seems finally set to intervene. I asked Niall Cooper from Fair Game, what has changed? Before, you know, there's been a lot of finger pointing. You know, we've done it ourselves, you know, going right, well, our owners are a bit rubbish in some clubs and, uh, you know, the stands are crumbling and uh, clubs are spending more than they earn. All these sort of things we've been pointing at, but never really sat down and said, right, well, how do we fix it? What are we at? What's the alternative? What's the kind of models that have done it? And that's really the bit that we've put a lot of hard yards into. Um, and I think that's really paid dividends. And that's on the back of the ESL that sparked people. You know, we we really sat down as an organisation at Fair Game and said, right, well, let's make sure that never happens again. And let's make sure, you know, clubs like Wimbledon moving to Milton Keynes never happens again. Let's make sure Cardiff City, you know, play in blue and Hull City aren't called the Hull Tigers and all these sort of other crazy things that have been happening in football as well as, the collapse of, you know, the clubs that we all know about now and all loved, um, you know, that sort of stuff. And it, it just seems when you look at it, when you add all of those things together, I mean, the case for a regulator, an independent regulator in football is basically that argument's over now. It's not about whether we need one anymore. It's about how do we make sure it's actually properly implemented? You know, football, the fans, the fair game clubs, politicians you know they're, they're all rallying around there it's about that timeline now adrian we need to just make sure it gets over the line and you know we have a proper system in place to to save our game for uh, for the final work uh, you know at last after all the kind of recklessness has happened i mean i love the fact that yeah, and we've, we've spoken a few times adrian and you 
I love your quote that you come out with, which is like, you know, you remember hooliganism being on the terraces and now it's in the boardroom. And that's one of my most favourite, for all your listeners out there, it's my, one of my favourite Adrian Goldberg quotes. And We've had a little bit of boardroom going back to the 1980s, sadly, possibly even before that, but I don't my knowledge of football boardrooms doesn't really significantly predate that. But, uh, yeah, people who I think are trying to wreck the game as we know it and as we love it. But I will put some quite hard devil's advocate questions to you as we go on. Uh, no, I welcome anybody who wants to join in and ask us a question as well. If they're listening live on Byline Radio via the Twitter app, there is a little microphone in the bottom left-hand corner of your screen. Just tap that to request access. And if you've got something sensible to say or a question to ask, we'll do our best to, to let you on and have a bit of airtime. Uh, let's break down some of the things that an independent regulator might do. And I'll start now with some of those which are perhaps in the biggest scheme of things, in some ways, the least important, but which also matter most to many ordinary fans, which is things like the name of the club or the colour of the shirt, which owners at Hull City and Cardiff City respectively try to interfere with these pieces of legacy, which to people outside of football might seem really irrelevant. Does it really matter if Hull City are called Hull City Tigers? Does it really matter if Cardiff City play in red rather than blue? Well, time after time after time, supporters have said, Yes, it really does matter to them. It matters to us. Yeah, totally. I mean, you know, football is a really unique ecosystem. It's a really unique environment. I think anybody who is a football fan and goes along on a Saturday afternoon at three o'clock, and that's kind of, you know, I'm probably talking about lower leagues now because it doesn't that really happen in the Premier League. You play Saturday at three. But, um, you know, the, there's something special about the shirt and your colours of your shirt and the, the badge and the kind of history that goes with it. You know, we've just done a, a load of videos uh, with with fans up and down the country. And it's the stories and the traditions that make it unique. You know, we had this 85-year-old uh, Tunbridge fan who recalls being on his dad's shoulders, you know, first going down to the match. And that kind of unique memory. And we've had people who go like, well, you know, I, I came along and now I volunteer and I mow the pitch at Gateshead and things like that. And, you know, the people that the couple that met on the coach traveling up to an away game, all these sort of things are all connected to what is really a community thing, a sense of belonging. And that sense of belonging really is what it means to, to that club name that club location, that club colour, the club badge, they're all things that, you know, fair game, we call them the crown jewels and they need to be protected because that's really what community is about. It's that sense of belonging. And, you know, I think that that needs to be cherished. And that's, you know, if you think of football as a pure business sense and a pure business, yeah, of course it doesn't make sense. But football isn't just a business. Football's a sensor. It's a, a center of people's communities. It's a, a it's a hub for an area, for a town, for a for a city, or in, you know, in some cases even a village. And that's what makes it special. You know, that kind of sense of coming together. We we heard so many stories over the last I have over the last few weeks. We've been speaking to all of our clubs of what it was like, you know, in COVID times when we had all the lockdowns, and there was a kind of breakdown of that community and 
there was such a relief for people being able to come back together and really kind of cherish those memories or, you know, realise that it wasn't just necessarily about the 90 minutes on the pitch, which is, uh, as an AFC Wimbledon fan, is probably a huge relief considering we haven't won for 27 odd games. Um, you know, it's, I hadn't it's, realised it was quite as bad as that for you. Oh, mate, we're, we are very close to setting a record. We have, um, we've got this wonderful record that we cherish, which is, as a senior football club, we've got the longest unbeaten run in British football, 78 games in league in uh, senior league matches, right? And the longest run of, uh, which we believe in, in league football, of a club having not won a game, it's, I believe, at 33. So we're pretty close to that. So we could have this unique record of holding both. <laughs> Don't really want to go down that route. But, yeah. you know, it's pretty, pretty rubbish. But even that is a story that tells you a bit more about the community of what it is like to be at, to go to a club. We will still get, you know, our last game of the season is at, uh, at home to Accrington and that'll be a sellout. Um, and it will just be, you know, the fans will be there just being part of the community. And that will be the same at clubs up and down the country. And that's what makes it different. You can't treat football just as a business because it isn't. Um, and that's what makes it so special as you know, you know, the owners are just like passing, you know, custodians of the tradition, you know, because the actual, the what what it really belongs to, what a football club really belongs to is the supporters. They're the ones with the memories and the history and the traditions. And that's that's really what the club's about. Um, so it's, that's what needs protecting. Mm. Uh, I'll come to some of the other uh, points I want to talk through with you, Niall, as, as we go along. But let's let's bring in We Are Luton Town, who've requested to join us on Byline Radio. Hello, We Are Luton Town. Welcome along. Hiya. How are you doing? You OK? Yeah, nice to speak to you. Um, what do you want to add or, or ask? It's, it's for Niall, really. It's just to, uh, to kind of gauge how does you feel we can get, get traction with this. Obviously, we had a a handful or a splattering of, of MPs um, in the House, you know, today speaking, and Rachel Hopkins, our MP, speaking about it as well. How can we uh, convey that over to the terraces? You know, uh, it seems to me that unless we've got a, um, a club like Derby or Reading or Stoke who are in trouble at the moment, until it becomes their issue, nobody seems to really care. And before they do get into trouble... Um, they don't really care either. So how can we convey that message and get traction? I think, first, firstly, I mean, Luton Town are, are one of the fair game clubs and Rachel Hopkins has been brilliant. Um, you know, great intervention today in the House of Commons. Um, and again, before you answer the listener's point, Niall, just explain what being a fair game club means. Yeah, no, really good point. So very, basically, you know, um, when we started out fair game, it, it always was club-led. You know, we, I went, I was given the task, I was elected onto the Don's Trust Board um, and I was given the task of identifying what AFC Wimbledon could do in the wider world of football beyond our own area. And as part of that, I spoke to loads and loads and loads of people, journalists, academics, other clubs, board members and so on. And everybody came back saying mm -hmm. the governance of football needs fixing, which I thought, you know, I'll take that on. Um, but then I spoke to a few other people and, and there were fans, groups that have been doing stuff, but clubs themselves had never really come together to address it. And that was seen as a very obvious gap. And being on a board of, of a football club 
at the time. It seemed like a really obvious route. So we reached out, spoke to a few people, had a few really great, good meetings. And Luton Town, one of the first clubs to come on board and, and back it. And we wanted to be club led. And Luton have been great at developing relationships and the supporters trust have been particularly brilliant there uh, at helping out. And that's that's been a really good boon for us. And it's so important that you have clubs, you break this kind of theory that football clubs are just a bunch of selfish individuals that don't really care because there are clubs that really do want change, that do really believe that there can be a better role model for football. And and those are largely the fair game clubs. And there are some other clubs that are, that are on the periphery as well. And that's what's been great. That's what I've really enjoyed about watching this this movement grow and it's grown massively. Now, now coming to the point about what can we do, um, you know, the thing is, is that with football clubs, since the turn of the century, 31 of the clubs in the top four divisions have gone into administration. So there's an awful lot of clubs that know what it's like to be on the brink of extinction. And it's those clubs with that experience that are really the ones that are kind of leading the way. And I think there's loads of other clubs when you look at the the supporters from the ESL clubs who are realising that football really needs a fundamental reboot, really needs a change. And there are clubs in in towns or cities that have got multiple clubs and they realise, they can take that look and realise how how perilous the game is. You know, we're, we've identified a fair game. We looked at the figures for 2020 and 52% of clubs are technically insolvent. You know, which means they are really actually on the brink of extinction. So that raising that actual reality is so important to football fans and football supporters and football clubs to realise that we really do need to change. Uh, and it does take momentum. You know, we need people like we are Luton Town to be outreaching to their kind of followers and and reaching out to other supporters of other clubs saying, look, we have to act. It is a now or never moment. And we've done a lot of work over the last few weeks to gather as many MPs as we possibly can. And we've now got uh, 61 MPs who have actively backing fair game, which is, you know, 10% of parliament, which is pretty healthy figures. And they include, um, you know, former Tory ministers and they include the shadow sports minister and people like that. So there's quite a lot of momentum, but it doesn't stop and it can't stop. So we need to continually push in. We need to continually go that. Otherwise, what I said at the start, you know, there's a risk that what we see now just becomes another dusty document in the cell of the parliament. And we can't allow that to happen. We are so close to change that we just need to keep on going. We need to keep on having that momentum. We need people to outreach, to reach out to other clubs, to reach out to MPs, to reach out to councils who have been really great as well coming on board and do whatever we can to make a difference. Um, and that's that's my ask. You know, Fair Game is, is run solely by volunteers, but there is probably around 100 people now that do something quite active, involved in helping Fair Game from the academics and the experts at universities to people that are willing to do a, a, a designer tweet for us or in, in Adrian's, Adrian's world to probably get dragged down to Plow Lane to do a launch of an event. I'm sure it wasn't dragged down, but, you know, or do kind of special... Uh, interviews for us and stuff like that and that's everybody has a role to play and this is what I think makes football so unique and I'm waffling now a little bit but it's it kind of <laughs> no, but no I mean the, I mean the, the listener I think now makes a, a good point and 
because underlying that is the fact that yes we're all football fans but the way football has developed we're all quite selfish you know Luton Town fans primarily are Luton Town fans first rather than football fans I would suggest people or at least people want their club to do well over and above any particular football interest I would suggest and for example Newcastle United were recently taken over by the Saudi Investment Fund. Now, I suspect that if you carried out a referendum on Tyneside, even though the Saudi regime is connected with the most horrific human rights abuses, and if you and I were to design a fit and proper person test for football directors, the Saudi Investment Fund might well fail it. If you had a referendum on Tyneside, it would probably be in favour of the takeover of Newcastle United by that organisation. So fans are very often just driven by their care for their club. They are ultimately one-eyed. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to. I'm not going to totally disagree with that. But where where I do think is is that there's a responsibility to look for something different. And where this comes through from, and what was kind of really clear from the Fair Game Clubs when I first had that conversation about it, was it was that a lot of clubs felt the pressure in the kind of keep up keeping up with the Joneses scenario. All right, they're doing it, therefore we have to do it. And the problem with that, and this is why regulators become so important, because what you're doing is you're in a race to the, well, not even the bottom, a race to extinction is what's happening. Because you look at the championship and you see so many clubs spending way more than they earn. And the moment that the dream of getting into the Premier League falls apart or the dream of getting up an extra division falls apart, you can tumble down and you can really go right to the bridge of no longer existing, as is the case with Derby right now. And think that's the big thing that really we need to look at. So it's a cultural change. And it takes clubs to be brave enough to do that and make that stand, which is what's so impressive about the clubs from Fair Game. Because we've said, actually, the system's broken and it needs to be fixed. And the reality is, because of the pressure from the clubs at the top end of the championship and the Premier League to say, right, well, actually, if you start restricting me, then I won't be able to be a rogue owner. Um, and, you know, I'm going to stop being able to do this and that's not fair. Well, actually, what we're saying is if everybody isn't allowed to be a rogue owner, if you have to be financially sustainable, if you have to actually set moral standards and like be representative or, and honour your community's heritage and traditions, then that's actually a far better way for football. It's levelling up football if you like um and another big thing of obviously fair game is our sustainability index which says you know let's take away the parachute payments and start giving that big shed of load of money to clubs that are actually run well you know score all the clubs on you know four criteria and give it to those clubs that actually honor that system honor that that would deliver a culture change and again, for people who don't perhaps know the, the ins and outs of how football is financed, if you're in the Premier League, you get a huge stack of money, nearly £100 million, even if you come bottom as a result of the input of money from Sky and BT and the broadcasting companies. And if you drop out of that into the Football League, into the Championship, your financial 
benefits significantly reduced, but you do get what are called parachute payments for a couple of seasons afterwards, or I think for three seasons afterwards, which many clubs in the championship say distorts their competition. It means that there are three clubs getting relegated every year from the Premier League who have a disproportionate amount of money to the rest of the championship. So they say that's unfair and you're saying that the club should be instead scored on a sustainability index. So how well they run they are financially, how much they put back into their community. That's where when the, the if you like, the surplus money from the Premier League is distributed lower down, that's how, that's the basis on which it should be distributed, not whether you were a failing club in the Premier League last season. Exactly that. I mean, like the figures are, it's £55 million is what you get when you fail from the Premier League. But what the extra allocation goes to other clubs in the Championship is £4 million. That's what they get from the TV revenue. So that's a massive disparity. So, yeah. I mean, you know, now, the, Niall, the, the 55 million is your first year's parachute payment. Yeah, the previous season, you, you will have got 100 million for finishing bottom of the Premier League. You then come down and you get your 55 million pound dividend. And that, that then does reduce over the next couple of seasons. But in any event, you are significantly better off than your rivals. So the, the competition is financially distorted in that way. Oh, hugely. I mean, um, and that's that's one of the big, big issues um, where it comes into. If you were I remember there, because uh, you said they each get it for three years. Effectively, each year, the Premier League pays out uh, over 250 million pounds in parachute payments. Um, that is just an absolutely phenomenal sum of money that if you looked at redistributing that down through the pyramid and we've done a quite a good financial model that it would mean clubs in the championship would get something like 15 million quid each, clubs in, in League uh, One, something like 8 million, League Two, four, five million. And, you know, and it, and it goes down to the National League, National League North and South, a women's game. Those sums of money that we're talking about in the lower leagues and even at the bottom half of the championship transformed the financial well-being of those clubs. That's if they were to all score top on the sustainability index. But if you were then going, right, well, actually, where I'm going to get most of my money is by being a well-run club, then your incentive, your whole business model changes to become a well-run club. And that is where we need to look at the culture, because what it would mean is that in the championship, the clubs that go up will actually be the well-run clubs rather than the clubs that have just automatically failed from the Premier League. And if you're a well-run club, then in theory, the money, the wealth you get from the Premier League, you look at how do I invest this to make sure I've got a better chance of going up rather than just knowing I'm going to go down and get my 55 million, keep it on players' wages, which some clubs have done before and they've succeeded on that, but others haven't and they've gambled and they've lost. Um, and that's where it becomes a reckless situation because when we say lost, what's at stake is the existence of your football club, which is quite a big stake. It's so much like Russian roulette. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, and because clubs in the championship, the level below the Premier League, gamble financially, as Derby County have done, spend money they haven't yet earned. And in fact, in their case, then never have earned and uh, put their whole future in jeopardy. Uh, there is a, an argument, and I've heard this in, in reaction to what Fair Game have argued, Niall, that actually very few clubs 
disappear. They might go into administration, they might end up owing money, but very few clubs actually truly go out of business. So, you know, there's a there's a fear over the future of Derby. Experience tells you that probably a deal will be done. Derby will face uh, a, a, perhaps a further points penalty going forward next season. Who knows? They'll be, you know, a tough year or two, but they're a well-supported club and, and they will be back. You know, it's uh, that, that in a sense that that you're waving a shroud here, that you, you're warning of bad things that never actually happen. The reason why I think that that is a really dangerous argument is because of those figures that I mentioned earlier on. Football is getting financially more and more unstable. And the risks now are bigger than they have ever been. When I say, as we did earlier on, 52% of clubs in 2020 were technically insolvent. That actually means they are really on the periphery. And remember that right now you're not going to get many foreclosures because people are kind of still living in the world of sympathy from COVID. But that will end. Equally, that 52% was before the COVID pandemic hit football hard. So that figure is going to be a hell of a lot higher. There are a lot more clubs that are right on the brink at the moment. Um, you know, we can look at Oldham, we can look at Rochdale, we can look at Sheffield Wednesday. There are a lot of other clubs there that are no longer financially viable. And it takes one owner, one person to walk away or to stop bankrolling that club for that club to instantly be at risk of complete collapse. And I honestly fear that at the moment, speaking to loads of other clubs, that's the route that we're heading down unless we have proper change. So, yeah, I might sound like a doom a doom monger, but the statistics, the academics that we've got looking at it, if people are looking at the financial picture of the game, really see that as a real big fundamental risk. And what we need to do is just change that model because you can't really constantly have a sustainable game that actually says that the only way you can do it is if you bankroll and you budget for a loss which is what, you know, one of my other favourite quotes is from Ian Mather from Cambridge, which I love, which is the, um, there are only two businesses that budget for a, a loss and they are startups and football clubs. And he describes Cambridge as the 109-year-old startup. And I love that quote. <laughs> Let's bring in our friend from We Are Luton Town. Sorry, I didn't catch your name earlier, mate. How are you? What's your name again? Hey, it's, it's Ian Robertson. Hello, Ian. Yeah, go on. You wanted to contribute again, yeah? Yeah, just, just on that point, really. And, and, you know, you make a valid argument about not many clubs actually fully going under or, or going by the wayside. But we, we have obviously seen examples of, of you know, like Luton and, and more so a- AFC Wimbledon that have, you know, gone out of the leagues for a fair few years. And that has not just a detriment effect on on the club itself, but the community, you know, for, for several years. And they've got to claw the way back. Um, there's a lot of hard work in that. And, you know, it's you're going the long way around to try and fix it, aren't you? You can't. There's no point wait until it's completely broken to then fix it over a period of, of 10, 15 years. You know, it's a long way back and a, a lot of support is lost in that time. So, you know, you get into a dangerous game when we um, we actually end up in that situation. And I feel like it's it's good. there's going to be some kind of blue touch paper, if you like. There's going to be one club go at some point to get the traction on this situation because something's got has got to change at some point um and i feel like we have little bumps of activity 
when a club like Derby, for instance, have issues, or maybe, you know, your Reddings or your Stokes, but not so much your Berries. Um, and, you know, we're all one big football family and we need to look after each other. You know, mm. and one one club did actually go out of business. I think I've been recently. Well, I mean, two actually. Berry, of course, the Berry FC, yeah. because there is now a fans club, uh, AFC Berry, which has uh, kind of been born uh, out of the ashes of Berry FC. But they are a different club and having to start again at the bottom. And also Macclesfield, didn't they? They slipped very quietly out of the league and and then disappeared and again i know that there's a, a new macclesfield not least because there's been a robbie savage documentary about it but I, I think the original macclesfield fc went bust i mean i suppose arguing against myself uh, football clubs do go bust um uh, i just wonder though you know from a luton town perspective but this will apply to many many clubs including my team west brom you know teams who are kind of middle ranking championship sides who hope one day to be middle ranking premier league sides again is that if we insist that clubs only spend money that they have and they have to live within their means there is an argument that let's say Luton Town who you know doing extremely well this season on gates of around 10,000 in a small stadium will never be able to get beyond the stage where that they currently are you know that it's big investments in clubs that is the means of them driving forward. And yes, it's a risk. Usually it's a risk, though, with a with a billionaire's money. Maybe that's the only way that Luton Town can ever be more than they currently are. Well, I mean, uh, our situation is slightly different in, in the fact that, you know, Gary Sweet's done a very good job in acquiring land, which we've then sold on for quite a, a large sum of money to pay for a new stadium um which can go up to twenty five thousand. so that'll that'll push us on and we've been very lucky in that respect but i I don't think that we should eliminate any risks there needs to be a little bit of wiggle room because you know people will take risks and they'll be rewards but it just needs to be tightened up a lot you know so there's no risk of a club actually going under um and it's not just about the money aspects but the most important stuff um like the rights for the badges the colors all that kind of stuff um that's just as important i know we've given our rights to our supporters trust um that should be a given in any club i feel i feel um but yeah i think i, I don't say we eliminate any risk whatsoever because clubs need to to have a little bit of a push um but it, it does need to be sustainable. We need to, for me, just bring FFP down a, a lot tighter than it is currently. That's a financial fair play. Uh, oh, thank you for that. I'll, I'll bring oh. in Harry in a minute. But, uh, Niall, let me ask you this, because I think, I mean, there'll be some fans, let's say, of Chelsea, who are very delighted that somebody like Abramovich has put £1.5 billion into the club in loans, which apparently he's not expecting to be paid back. Other fans will say that's clearly a distortion of competition and has given Chelsea a kind of an unfair advantage in the transfer market. But even if we don't have those extreme examples, is it not reasonable if somebody has got a, a, a... a willingness perhaps to invest money into a football club to help grow the club, perhaps on the expectation that they might not get it back. Is it reasonable in that situation, Niall, to to kind of pay a little bit more than you're actually getting in to hopefully grow the club? Because that's what businesses do, isn't it? To where we're at with this, 
I think is it's when we come back to financial sustainability within a football club, you know, the, the model for that is to ask the question, if this owner walks away, does this club still exist? If the answer to that is yes, then that sort of thing that you talk about there is fine. Because the key is to make sure the club is financially secure. Now, there are models where, where an owner will put investment into a football club and that money is not secured. In, in other words, it means that if they walk away, that money stays with the club. That's the kind of thing you'd need to be looking at if you're going for that investment model. Where I think that we ultimately need to be aiming for is moving away from the owner, you know, owner donor model, which is the kind of model where the club can only exist because the owner's pumping money in. That's the bit where you start getting a risk because when that owner goes, and owners always go at some point, then that club becomes at risk. That's the bit that you just need to be really wary of. Um, you have seen clubs where they've just donated cash and that's fine. And our financial experts will talk about a cash flow model, which means that, you know, can you pay all your debts that are due in the next six months with with the revenues and the reserves that you've got? If the answer to that is yes, then you'll find you're a going concern. And that's where, you know, we need to be looking at. So when we talk about scoring on financial sustainability, that's exactly what we'd be looking at. And that's the bit that I think becomes really important. Um, yeah, I mean, people can still, will still gamble. People will still put risk and put their clubs at risk. But if you start going back to what we were talking about with the sustainability index and start rewarding clubs for being running well, then what we would say is that if you're a club that is got uh, that ability to be financially secure, that's where you get your extra reward for being a club that actually is looking at changing that culture and making sure that you're there for the long term. Because you, you can't consistently rely upon that. As Chelsea would have been dreaming for years and years and years about, you know, having an owner like that. But like the moment Abramovich got caught up in what he's got caught up in, then actually there's still a question mark over what happens with Chelsea right now. Um, you know, and that that example, which is the extreme example, can be applied much further down the pyramid where a person walks away and it's like, and then what? And that's the issue. And we need to make sure the and then what means and your club is still there and your club is still financially viable. If that's not the case, then, you know, we're, we're playing recklessness. Is there an argument at all, and I've heard many fans say this, for allowing those supposed Super League clubs to go off on their own and do, frankly, whatever they want to do. I personally would have no difficulty in supporting a club that's committed to financial sustainability, only spending uh, on transfers and wages when it gets through the gate. But that would be a very different world if every club had to obey, obey those rules than the one we have now in football. And and the top end of the Premier League is utterly distorted. If my team, West Brom, or if Luton get into the Premier League, you're only ever playing to finish fourth from bottom and gain your share of the TV revenue in order then, next season to do it all again and I made a film a while back called Keepy Uppy which made the point that this not only poisons the Premier League and the Championship because clubs are then overspending in a bid to get the 
their hands on the big money of the Premier League, it also poisons the FA Cup and it also poisons the League Cup because clubs uh, kind of roughly between 11th and 30th place in the pyramid, clubs in the bottom half of the Premier League and clubs in the top half of the Championship do not commit their best teams to win the FA Cup or the League Cup. So you you kind of kill three competitions in one go because we're all desperate to stay in or get into the Premier League, which we're never going to win. It's, 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 it's just kind of ridiculous treadmill. If the so-called Big Six disappeared and went off on their own, whatever, who cares kind of league, the rest of football, you can argue... Would be a much more vibrant, much more truly competitive environment, and actually much more enjoyable for some of the best supported clubs in the country. It's a wonderful argument, and honestly, that conversation I've had in the pub many a time. Actually, on that, it's it's a it's a real classic dilemma. On that, uh, I think there are clubs among the big six, and you know, Adrian, I've spoken to a couple of them now. The actually do have more of a kind of respect on the pyramid and a, and to be honest, a massive guilty conscience at the moment from what they did with the ESL. Um, you know, one in particular, massively that case. Um, and it, you kind of sense that there is a need to reinvigorate the competitive balance that exists within the championship and within the Premier League that isn't there at the moment. And that's, is a massive question mark that needs to be addressed because you're right. Otherwise it does become, you know, actually what is the excitement of going, well, my, our big success is going to be finishing fourth from bottom or our big success is going to be, you know, scraping to that last Europa league spot, you know, that sort of, that sort of element of, of football when you're kind of just going, well, well, the top six are just the top six. Um, we need to look at that. And we need to think. But, and, and, and I, I think personally, this perhaps goes beyond the independent football regulator because I think what I've argued this before. You know, this is a, a question I would suggest for the Competitions and Markets Authority. I really do think it's that when you've got a club like Chelsea whose owner has written off one and a half billion pounds in loans, that's not simply about Chelsea having the ability to do well in a particular cup competition or do well in a league competition, doing well in a league competition when you are funded to that degree in itself brings financial reward. It builds you into the the top positions for the next season and the season after that because you're getting all the prize money and you're getting the television money. So it isn't just a case of some sort of some some rich oligarch having a bit of a, a play at the casino of football and throwing a, throwing a dice, you're actually helping to embed your club at the top of the financial benefits of that, of that game. And, and so I'd, I'd argue from that point, it really is a, an issue for the competitions and, and, and markets authority. That isn't something, as far as I can see, that the the independent regulator of football is going to look at. And you also have the situation in European football now where the, the people who run UEFA, the, the organising committee of, of European football, they've kind of been frightened by the Super League, haven't they? They've been cowed. So now you have this proposal for a so-called coefficient, which means that traditionally successful clubs who have a bad season 
might nevertheless qualify for the Champions League because they've got a great history. So you've got you've got money, you've got administrators, kind of effectively entrenching success for certain clubs, and that will be beyond the remit of this independent regulator that the government's proposing. In the European sense, you're right. And I've, I've had some really interesting conversations with some uh, people from UEFA who are very acutely aware of that issue that you, you're talking about there. Um, and again, on a European level, there is a, I, I forget the name of the organisation, but there's a group of 40 odd so uh, top European football clubs that basically act as a, a, a group that lobby for, you know, within the within, within UEFA about what happens. And they are hugely influential. Um, and that's a big problem because, again, it's about a cartel. If I'm using that word, it's a cartel. And in, same within the Premier League is petrified of the big six leaving. So what they've begun to do is bottle some of the decisions that need to be made about making it proper competitive balance. And actually, that is where a strong independent regulator could look at it and go, well, what's actually for the benefit of football? You know, what culture are you trying to create? Are you trying to compete a competitive culture which actually does work on just letting clubs that are run well get the success of being run well? And that's a bit where, you know, you can get success on the pitch, but if you can get clubs that are actually run well and give them the benefit, then their reward for being run well would be success on the pitch. That's where I think you need to look at the financial flows. And the Premier League certainly never going to be able to do that because as an organisation, they are basically in hoc to the top six of the Premier League. Um, and the same with the EFL. The EFL is largely in hoc to the top seven or eight in the championship because of the way the voting works. So until you have an independent regulator that has the ability to look holistically at what's benefit for the entire game on the financial flow side, then you really are going to see those disparities just increase. And that's why, you know, for fair game, we argue really heavily for saying that the financial flows of how to make sure football is, is run fairer and more sustainably need to go to an independent regulator because the vested interest elsewhere just is never going to deliver what we actually need to see to make sure football is a more competitive and more sustainable industry. You know, having having clubs that are, are run well and on good governance on financial sustainability and quality standards, fan and community engagement, those sorts of things, and those clubs that thrive because of it, that's got to be a better way for football to be. And And, you know, the one thing I can say about that is Adrian, a year ago, we'd been in dreamland if we wouldn't, if we, uh, if even a year and a half ago, we'd have been in dreamland to think that we could even be close to it. And now we've just had the government basically pass three quarters of what I've just said, um, you know, wanting, making a commitment that they're going to put that in. So we just need to keep on pushing because that aspiration, that kind of dream, which sounds like, you know, uh, I don't know, something out of Alice in Wonderland is actually possible. All right. Well, let's let's see, let's see what Chris, a Chelsea fan, I think, has got to say about it. Chris, hello, welcome to Barlow Radio. You're right. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not bad, mate. How are you? How is everybody? You okay? Very good. Yeah, nice to speak to you, Chris. Go on. What, what do you want to ask or say? Uh, no, I just want to. I just want to see um, that. Look, money, money's the big thing. First of all, I just want to see to touch on what you said about the Premier League big six. Obviously, Chelsea's part of the big six in the Premier League. 
and we're shamefully a part of the uh, the Super League plans. I just want to say that as much as I know the the supporters of the the smaller sides, you know the the supporters of Leeds, Wolves, etc., etc., can say, ah, let them go, let them go. The league, the league will be thriving or will be a vibrant place without them. Will it though? Because for me. The big six are what make the Premier League, in my opinion. The, the, the big six for me, if you were to take those seven six clubs out of the Premier League, the, the Premier League would not crumble, but it certainly would not be the best league in the world, for example. A lot of people would be looking at the other leagues, La Liga, Bundesliga. Yeah. Although, although, Chris, it's an interesting point, you know, when you use that phrase, the best league in the world, I can tell you that supporters of many teams outside the big six do not regard it as the best league in the world. They regard it, to use Niall's phrase, as a cartel. It's a closed shop at the top end of it, and it it poisons football for the rest of us. It it really does. The, The EFL... And bear in mind, you know, that that's that's not even the bottom clubs in the Premier League. That's the, you know, clubs who are whatever, 21 to 44. I'm, my math is not very good. Yeah, 21 to 44 in the football pyramid in England is the ninth best watch league in Europe. So, you know, I accept what you say. I mean, you know, can you imagine... An English top division without Manchester United, without Manchester City, without Liverpool, without Chelsea. You know, of course, it's hard. But I think the idea of, and you've named clubs there like Wolves or Leeds, being top dogs in their own national competition would arguably give an extra spurt of energy and help to increase attendances. I mean, the truth is none of us know, Chris, but, you know, that's a risk as a fan I'd be willing to take. Go on, Chris. Yeah, what do you want to say, my friend? Go on. No, just just to touch on it, like, obviously, um, obviously my club, Chelsea, um, they were on the verge of being no more, obviously, for yeah. a pound can baseball the club and look I'm I'm fortunate I'm lucky I, I would gladly admit that not a lot of Chelsea supporters will admit that I'm lucky as a supporter I've, look, I've grown up success after success seeing Chelsea win the Champions League twice uh, five Premier Leagues having fantastic players and I'm fortunate and I feel sorry for the likes of Buddy fans who football is in my, in my opinion is a part of life and a lot of Bury fans would have felt the same. And for me, when I look at the likes of Chelsea's wages, I mean, Romelu Lukaku, for example, is on 325 grand a week. Uh, the likes of Danny Drinkwater, who's at Reading, is on 100, 100 plus grand a week. And for me, the wages are a big, big issue in football, in my opinion. Will there be a cap? I don't think there will. But for me, the wages are a big issue. Chelsea's wages are a disgrace. They really are a disgrace. Yeah. But, but to, Chris, to take to take Niall's point, then I mean, you know, Chelsea are obviously a decently supported club, and you know, if you said you've got forty thousand fans coming through the gate every home game, you've obviously then got sponsorships to to throw into that. I mean, realistically, nobody would go poor, would they, playing for Chelsea? I, I think. Would you be willing to accept if, if every other club had to play by these set of rules? By the way, and we're not talking about just picking on Chelsea here, Chris. If every club had to play by the set of rules whereby, let's say, Chelsea could only spend seventy percent or eighty percent of their turnover on wages, and and all, every club had to stick by that rule, would would you accept that, Chris? You know, it might Chelsea might not be as well off 
say, as Man United or as Man City, I don't know, but they'd still be competitive. And nobody would go poor, would they? Um, would I accept that? Yes, I would. Yes, mm. I would. I'm mm. being honest. It's my opinion. Obviously, some Chelsea supporters wouldn't agree with it because yeah. they, they think about when I'm seeing clubs go into business and when I'm seeing, obviously, football's a business game now. That's what it is. It's not a sport. It's a sport, but it's a business game now. People come in and you know spend money left at centre. Obviously, Newcastle have just joined the monopoly of money now with their owners, but... Would I accept the you know spending seventy seventy five percent eighty percent of Chelsea's turnover? So it's a level playing field. I would accept that. I would. Oh, I've got to be honest. I've got to put. I've got to put my rights and my morals first. I would. And as I always go back to the clubs that are Derby on the brink of no longer being there. Uh Burry's obviously gone. Bolton, for example. So see, when I'm seeing clubs go to business, and the the rich are getting richer, and the poor are getting poorer, I don't agree with that. I think yeah. you should uh, Chris, I, I know, I'm, I'm, Chris, Chris, again, not you know, only kind of you know, in a in a polite way. But I would, when you say football is a business, it, it kind of is and it isn't, isn't it? it? Of course, it's a business because it needs money to survive and it needs people coming through the gate and TV money and all that to to make it happen. But there's no other business in which a, a billionaire, and I'm not picking on Chelsea in particular, but I, I just think this is a great example. Yeah, same, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you know where where somebody would throw one and a half billion pounds at this business and then go, ah, you know what, you can have it. I mean, that, that's you know, true. That, it's true. It also goes back to the players as well, mate. Because when like any any line of work, whatever you do, so I'm a bricklayer, right? If yeah. I perform badly at my job at my trade, I am not going to I'm not going to be getting paid what I would want. But footballers get get paid hundred grand a week, two hundred grand a week, and they perform badly, and it's all right because it doesn't matter. You know what I'm saying? So the players don't really care either. I just I just think the money, the money now is just it's gonna to get to the point where we're gonna see the first a billion pound player, you know, the likes of Mbappé <laughs> Haaland. It's just it's gonna get mad. It's gonna get mad. Yeah, you'll see the first billion pound footballer before you see the first billion pound bricklayer. Hundred percent, hundred percent, mate, hundred percent. Let's let's bring in the football actuary. Hello, football actuary. I I think I named you as the football accumulator or something a little bit earlier on. My apologies. What's your name anyway? Uh, I think you did. Hello, yeah. My name's um, Bart. Um, I'm yeah, I'm an actuary. Um, and I'm also interested in football. And I also know Niall a bit. So we've been doing some um, work with Fair Game recently um, to, to, to look at how they might make sustainability index work in practice. Um, but first of all, I just I'm also a, both a big football team fan at Liverpool and a smaller one at Tranmere Rovers because I'm, I'm allowed to because I'm from the Wirral and Liverpool, my first team, but Tranmere are my local one. Um, so I can see I can see it from both sides, the big side and the small side. And and I think, I mean, Tranmere are a great example of in recent years of what can happen when the finances get into a bit of a mess, but also what can happen when someone who runs a club properly with a fun eye on the finances and on sustainability can can turn that round in the in the in the shape of Mark Palios over the last uh, I think seven years, um, and and how they've they've transformed Tranmere into a, a solid club. Um, not doing as well as we'd like, not doing as well as we've done in it historically. But I think we see the trajectory going upwards. I know there's a Tranmere fan on the call as well. And I, and, um, and I don't know if he came, went to the game on Saturday, but uh, we, we lost dismally at Stevenage. So it's not, not all good news at Tranmere. But um, I, I, I think the point I wanted to make is about the sustainability index. And this, this is an opportunity now 
I think with the Super League having sort of failed for football sort of governance and stability and those sort of things to be grabbed. And if we don't take it now, I think we're going to miss a big opportunity. And the sustainability index as, as fair game is a really as proposed, I think is a really brilliant idea because I, I think it does two things. First of all, the aim, and, and, it, and I think the amounts of money aren't that important. It's the whole concept of incentivizing clubs to do the right thing. And the right thing is in being financially stable. It's in having good governance structures. And it's also doing things like engaging with the community and with the fan base and also having equality within um, clubs in the same way as most businesses now are focusing on um, equality, diversity, inclusion, equity, all those sort of things. And if if we don't manage to get Parliament and the regulator to grab it now, we'll have missed a big opportunity uh, and it probably won't come again. OK, fair enough. Thank you very much indeed, Bart. Go on, Chris, you've got a lot to say for yourself. Go on. No, no, I just want to ask a uh, football uh, archery a question. So you say you're a Liverpool uh, fan and a Tramia fan, yeah? Okay, That's so right. can I just ask you a question regarding Liverpool? Okay, because during the pandemic, um, Liverpool placed their staff mm-hmm. on furlough. Now that to me, I felt was a big, was like, are you serious? Because as you know, Liverpool are part of the big six. They're a big club, the biggest club in England, right? And they do make a lot of profit, you know? Uh, hence why you just signed, you saw Coutinho brought in Van Dijk, Alisson. So you do have profits and you do have enough money, okay? But I'd, I just want to know your thoughts. What was your thoughts on your club, Liverpool, placing staff on furlough during the pandemic? When... Uh, Chris, can I just interject, interject yeah. there? Yeah. Uh, Liverpool did do that originally at the start of the pandemic, but they then did reverse... No, uh, but it was the whole point, Moy. That's what I'm saying. It was the whole point. I'd, I'd, yeah, I mean, I'd say the vast majority of Liverpool fans were totally embarrassed and felt it was completely the wrong thing. I don't want to get sidetracked into this yeah. debate, Chris, if you don't mind. Um, and, 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 and let, let's let's stick with the, the subject that we're you know, discussing. Yeah. But thank you. Appreciate that. And thank you as well uh, to Bar the football uh, actuary. And uh, I do want to just remind you as well, if you're new to all this, you're listening to Byline Radio, or you might be listening to Catch Up on the Byline Times podcast. All of this is funded by subscribers to the Byline Times. It's a brilliant monthly newspaper, free and fearless independent journalism, seeking to root out corruption and just kind of tell it like it is in politics, in society in general. So if you want to support journalism like that, that has nobody pulling its strings, do please take out a subscription to the Byline Times. you get details of how to do that on our website at bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. And before we go, in a little while, I'll also tell you about a fantastic Byline Festival that is coming up this weekend. At least it's this weekend, if you're listening before the last weekend in April and the first weekend in May. And uh, let me bring uh, Niall back, uh, Niall, just for some kind of closing thoughts on this, Niall. I mean, obviously, it's been a great success to get this far, but the Premier League is kicking back on this, isn't it? it it's it's very anti the idea that an independent regulator should st- tell it how to spend the money that it receives from television when it comes to distribute it lower down the pyramid do you know what i've watched several of these you know chairman and ceos of those big clubs talking about it and honestly you know somebody who kind of knows media and pr a little bit 
I keep on going, keep talking because you're making the case for the independent regulator clearer and clearer with every breath you take. Um, because you're talking about people that are just absolutely obsessed with self-interest and aren't actually looking at the wider view of what's needed in the game. In, you know, I mean, like I go back to all the studies, all the academic research, all the polls from football fans, which the latest one was 11,000 Premier League fans with 85% backing an independent regulator. You know, all of that all points towards that you need one, you need a regulator, and yet you just hear the likes of Simon Jordan speaking today. And I was just listening to him, and I just thought, how absolutely out of touch are you with the realities of the wider ecosystem of football, what football really needs? Um, you're clearly speaking with a completely self-interest hat on, which, you know, as some business people, that's fine. But actually, we need to change football. And the more you talk, the more I could just sense that all the people that aren't Crystal Palace fans in that example, and in fact, quite a lot of Crystal Palace fans themselves, would just be cringing and going, really? Is that, what you're, is that your argument? That actually all that matters is your own club and your own selfish bit? And that you want to have that opportunity to be able to overspend, spend more than you earn. What happens when you go, Simon? What happens to Palace then? What happens to all the other clubs? Do you not actually care about Bury or Macclesfield or Bolton or Oldham or Derby County or all the other clubs that will follow? Is that really what you're on about? And for me, you know, we need that regulator. We just need to have it onto the uh, onto the statutory books and get it done, get it dusted, sort the game out. Um, that's where we're at now. That's the time it is. So Premier League people, you know, I mean, there are clubs that will come out, I think, and support it. I know there certainly are ones that, that have told me that, but there are, there are always going to be a few people that are just in a way, you know, an advert for um, exactly why you need the regulator. And they will kind of, they'll espouse, they'll all come out of the woodwork in the next few days. But you just listen to them and just think, what are you really on about? Do you really care about the game? And I think the answer every single time is going to be no, they don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, we should be fair. We should be clear about this. I mean, the Premier League does give money, considerable sums of money, to clubs below the Premier League. So currently, it's scheduled to give away £1.6 billion of its collective revenue over the next three years to clubs lower down the pyramid. Now, that amounts to about 16% of its revenues. But just... Um, just, just to stop you there, stop you there very quickly, Adrian. Right, and how much of that is parachute payments? Well, I was going to say, you stopped, <laughs> me, you stopped me in my flow. Just over half of that is yeah. in parachute payments. So on the face of it, that sounds very generous, doesn't it? They're going to give away uh, £1.6 billion, but under the current schedule... £800 million of that will be in parachute payments. So it's going to clubs who have just dropped out of the Premier League and will make it much easier for those clubs to get straight back into the Premier League, in theory anyway. But the government wants not 16% of their revenues to be distributed lower down the pyramid. It wants 25% of those revenues to be distributed lower down the pyramid. So I just find it quite interesting that you've got a conservative government, if you like, a free market government, really acknowledging, and this seems to come right from the top of the government, acknowledging that football 
cannot be treated in the way of a, a regular conventional business. There is a recognition, I think, amongst government and amongst more enlightened administrators, even at some of the biggest clubs, that, that football is part of an ecosystem, a big ecosystem that can be sustained, it can be supported, it can be nourished, or it can be ignored and left to wither. And at the moment, we're in a phase where government's saying, no, let's encourage it, let's sustain it, let's nurture it. I think if you look at, when you talk about those sums of money, if that was to be distributed to clubs that look at investing in their community, look at look at how they can do be sustainable, right? which means looking at your academy, looking at the infrastructure of your stadium, looking at investing into community programmes. That amount of money going to all these clubs so you know we we look at the 140 clubs outside of the uh you know outside of the championship that you know in the going down to national league north and south and the women's game that's 140 towns villages cities getting a huge sums of money well not huge but for them big sums of money that would be invested into a community you know that is and i'm going to use a conservative phrase here that's leveling up across the entire country Mm. And uh, again, what, what's important, I think, about what you say is that this is not money which would be taken from Premier League clubs, given to clubs lower down the pyramid, so that they could then spend it on inflated player salaries. That's not the point. In order to qualify for the money, you would have to meet the criteria of the sustainability index. And that is not about paying you paying the, the dividends of the Premier League as wages to clubs lower down the pyramid. It is about investing in women's football. It's investing in your local community and various schemes and projects so that the, the good of football can spread ever wider throughout local communities. Exactly that. And that is the route to sustainable football clubs. Because if you invest in your community, they're the people who are going to want to feel the pride of wearing the badge and the shirt that we talked about earlier on walking down the high street. If you invest in infrastructure into your stadium, then people are going to want to turn up to a stadium. Outside of the Premier League, there's an awful lot of stadiums that are crumbling. And if you've got proper investment into those, that's going to help. If you invest into your academies and your your local kind of sporting activities, that actually creates a new investment. You, you talk about the money we're talking about is enough easily to get a category three academy at every single club outside of the championship or the international league, North and South and in the women's game. That would create a wealth of new talent into the game. You know, it would be absolutely a massive boost for our national game. And if that's the big thing that actually gets people through the gate is seeing the national team doing well, that's the route to do it, you know, and you've got and all the people thinking about caring about football because football shows what good it can do in your local community. That boosts the game as well. This is all a win-win. What it takes is the bravery to say, let's not just give the money to clubs that come out of the Premier League so they can prop up ridiculously inflated players' wages, but give it to clubs that are going to invest in their community and in their local areas. That transforms not just the talent that comes through, but the communities they operate in. That's got to be a win. That's got to be the way the football should go, really. And it, it's a no-brainer when you explain it to politicians or you explain it to people. The only people that oppose it are those with kind of some warped self-interest in how football's operated. Those are the people that uh, you know don't really deserve to be running our game. 
Niall Cooper from uh, Fair Game. Thank you, CEO of Fair Game. Thanks very much indeed for spending so much time with us tonight. Really fascinating. I know there are other arguments and other de- debates and other points of view, and I'm, I'm very happy to to hear them on another occasion and, and open up a bigger debate. But it's been really fascinating to hear Niall having the chance to just kind of uh, let us know in really quite some detail about what Fair Game would propose and how closely aligned that is with the government's thinking. Thanks to everybody who's listened. If you've enjoyed it, by the way, let me recommend to you the Byline Festival. That's going to be held this coming weekend, 29th of April to the 1st of May on Portobello Road, Ackland Village Market in North Kensington in London, described as a mix of inquisitive journalism, free speech, comedy, music and all-round entertainment. If you can't get yourself down there, by the way, down to Portobello Road. You can also buy a virtual ticket through Byline TV. But there's some fantastic guests lined up, including former footballer Rio Ferdinand, along with the likes of Joanna Scanlon, Sanjeev Buskar, Jonathan Pye, Asif Kapadia, Don Letts, Carol Cadwallader, Bonnie Greer, Ian Lucas, Otto English, Musa Akwanga, and Peter Jukes, the co-founder of the Byline Times. So if you want more details on that festival, as I say, it's running all over the weekend, head over to bylinefestival.com. That's bylinefestival.com. I'm Adrian Goldberg. Thanks very much indeed for listening to Byline Radio or the Byline Times podcast. We'll see you again very soon. Stay tuned to Twitter and at Byline Radio for details of more live Twitter spaces. We'll see you again soon. Thank you. Cheers. Bye-bye now.